following on from our governance discussion we had in June, we're going to continue the discussion today. I'm Doug Ewing, a partner at the KPMG Canada and head of our major projects group. And with me again today is Don Fairbairn, the current board chair with the City of Calgary Greenline Project Board and the board chair of Hool Electric. And Jane Bird, a senior legal advisor at Bennett Jones, a director of the Canadian Infrastructure Bank Board and a director with the Governance Committee for Western Forest Products both whom spent most of their careers involved with large complex undertakings, both projects and programs, and the governance and leadership aspects of them. We spoke about the importance of good governance and in order to set your large complex projects and programs up for success. We talked about why it's critical, what it means and the timelines of it, and how to best implement it. There, there were some excellent questions asked during and after the June session, and we're going to answer some of them now. A theme that appeared in a number of questions during and after the sessions is, I've heard a number of times throughout the session, that being the June 8th session, about the importance of timely decision-making. Could you comment on how governance affects timely decision-making and why that matters? All right, well, thanks, Doug. I think we can all agree that um, timely decision-making does matter. Um, so the real question is, does a effective governance framework or model make it more likely that decisions are made in a timely manner, but also that the decisions themselves are good decisions? And the um, I think one of the art of a good governance framework is establishing expectations around how issues are escalated within the team and then between the team and the board, and of course, uh, with uh, stakeholders, whether they be shareholders or those with a very strong uh, interest and who are impacted by the decisions of the team and the board. And I think the way a strong governance framework does that is that it outlines with clarity decision-making authority and ensures that it's properly delegated. And I'd say that's even more important um, given all that we've been through in the last 18 months. Um, you know, we're probably moving into a hybrid model where uh, teams are not all present in the same physical surroundings. So really explicit frameworks that the team and the board uh, establish and work towards, I think are critical. And it's particularly important because good governance, good project management is a forward-looking exercise. We're constantly uh, debating uh, the merits of a forward-looking schedule, milestones, decision gates, and the risks that we should anticipate as we move forward. So as between the leadership of the team and the board, really critical to have early and frequent discussions and disclosure around risk in anticipation of a future decision. So I think a strong governance framework combined with a strong team uh, has a better chance of timely, high quality decision making. And and Don, maybe I, I fully support that, but I and I think it might be helpful just to go a little bit more granular just to take if not an example, just to have a, more, have a sort of practical 
uh, view of that. So if you imagine on any project, you've, you've run into a technical issue. It may or may not give rise to a, a change order. It may or may not be on the risk register. It may or may not um, end up being material, but it's, it's, it's a worry. Your guys in the field have figured that out. There there's some there's discussions with the contractor at whatever their weekly meetings are. You're starting to get anxious. You're not really sure. If you know, as a member of the management team, that you can escalate that to your executive on the project team, and you can say, "This is what I'm seeing coming down the field," and you know, and your and then project manager knows, this is the sort of thing that you know in my regular reporting up to the board, we would forecast on our things to be worried about list as Don. John says on a forecast basis. I remember having slides of just what we're worrying about, right, and the size and scale of it, and what it might or might do in terms of our forecast to complete. And that process alone of knowing when to escalate, knowing there's a place for it to initially show up in front of the board, and then it iterates back around and it's become a little more precise. It's become a bigger deal, or it's gone off the off the radar. It allows number one just a good information. Number two, it gives your team confidence that there is a route to resolve something and improves their relationship with the contractor because he can say, hey, she can say with some predictability, you know, some accuracy, you know, let's defer that for a couple project meetings and I'll be back to you because you already know what the circle is as opposed to this black hole of, I don't know when I'm ever going to hear anything about this again. And then finally, if you're lucky enough to have a good team and a good board, you get some good information and some directional advice along. So somebody says, you know, uh, my experience, this is likelier than not to happen. So let's uh, escalate that and do a little bit more technical work on that for the next time we come around. Or somebody says, not on your life, are we going to uh, entertain that? And then this, the, the project manager gets a little bit of a directional feel for where, where things are going and can kind of iterate the feedback. And, and I think that's where it's the cadence starts to occur and you get confidence in the team of the route for the decision to go. You get confidence you're going to get good and accurate feedback. Your contractor or counterparty starts to hear that feedback in a predictable way. It establishes better trust relationships with the contractor. The whole thing just keeps giving back once you can hit that sort of cadence of decisions. All right. Thanks, Jane and Dawn. Um, another good question that was asked during the June session is, the largest challenge I have seen is having advisory boards with members who have been around projects, but no one has actually executed projects. This added educator role on the team is distracting. How can this be mitigated? This touches on the composition of the board or steering committee. Can you touch on that as well? Sure. I guess the first point is that um, I think you've seen the dynamic that we're talking about here. Um, in a number of different contexts. So it's not just unique to projects. It, it happens in corporate boards, be they public or private, um, where the management team or, or project execution team is sort of looking at the board going, what have these guys got to add or these women got to add to, to the equation here and what value are they going to contribute? And I think my advice would be, and I hope, Don, maybe you can touch on this in a minute, but my advice would be to get uh, a board that's representative broadly of the interests or disciplines that are appropriate for the project. And as we know, as projects become more complicated, those interests and disciplines are, are more varied than they might have been 25 years ago. So assuming for the minute that you have that in place, I think it's important to sort of take a little bit of a leap of faith as a project manager and ask yourself, if I were to be a, a little more candid than I might want to be with this group of people and sort of open some communication with them as part of my reporting, 
to A, ask them, tell them what I'm worrying about, ask them what their advice might be, uh, explain how you're planning on reporting to the board and get their feedback on that and then refine that reporting as you go forward. I think what it starts to create is that feeling of trust between the management team and the board that we talked about in the last session. And you'll find that if you are a little bit more candid than you might want to be and not report to the board that everything's perfect, uh, how soon can I get out of here? And more a question of, you know, here's here's what I'm worrying about. Here's what the team's worrying about. Here's what we did over the last month, but here's where my where I see sort of wind on the water a couple of day, days over and be open to hearing some feedback. Then I think the board in turn will contribute and you in turn may, you know, all the advice isn't going to be good. I mean, I wouldn't be the first person probably to admit that I have done the odd in eye roll in a board meeting. But a lot of and it again, it just set, sort of sets up a feedback loop that over time, just if you're fortunate, it gets stronger and stronger. And the only thing I'll close with, and then Don, you you have I know some thoughts on this, but the only thing I, I would just add is usually like any group of people, there are a couple of board members that are a bit of an an outlier maybe, and uh, one of two things is going to happen. Either that board member will stay an outlier uh, forever, which which isn't to say discount the outlier, because sometimes from the outlier you get the best advice or you get a perspective that no one else is getting. But uh, either that or, you know, there'll be kind of a board culture that'll start to sink in a little bit, and that, that person, like in any group, like in any team, will kind of come back within the within the circle. And, and it'll kind of self-govern. So I would just close by saying, if you have that feeling about your board, like, oh Lord, how did I in, inherit this group of people? I would just say, uh, take a little bit of a leap of faith. Uh, and secondly, notice that it will develop its own culture. And if you support that culture, it usually right-sizes itself uh, over time. I agree, Jay. My own personal experience is that it takes a level of humility to take on the obligation of reporting up to the board. Um, you know, I've been on both sides of this discussion and it is quite frankly, irritating and painful to have to uh, report up to a bunch of folks that you may not, uh, at least initially, uh, think they know what they're doing, but that's not uh, healthy. <laughs> it's actually, you know, there's, at least in my experience, there was a level of arrogance implicit in my thinking that, um, and for that very reason, I think boards are helpful because you have to be vulnerable. You have to have a level of humility and you have to acknowledge that not every board member can have led projects. In fact, the opposite uh, should be true. You really don't want a former CEO or a former project leader sitting on the board telling you how to do your work. What you really need is enough people with some good, strong subject matter expertise, some very high emotional intelligence, and either corporate or political acuity to provide some oversight for sure, but also to have your back as a project leader. It's not simply a matter of people standing back and lobbing over criticisms or, you know, as a project director you spending your time educating them. Um, it's much more nuanced, much more valuable. I'll say this as well. It takes time to develop what Jane was talking about, trust, the ability to communicate. Um, I'm involved in and have been now working hard in Calgary for over 18 months to put in place a board. We've been up and running for six months and 
you know, we're all sitting around the table trying to do our very best. And only just now are some of us feeling like we've got our feet underneath us and that we're functioning effectively as a board. So while you as a project leader may know precisely what you're doing, um, there's a risk in having that feeling. And if you commit to uh, governance and a new governance framework, A, it will take more effort than you think. Uh, B, you have to allow the board to gain their own confidence. But C, at the end of the day, uh, you'll be a more effective leader. You'll uh, benefit from oversight and support. And finally, I guess some boards are better than others. You know, if you're stuck with a bad hand, um, well, for sure, you're going to have to do your best to see if you, working with the chair, um, can improve the quality of the board. But my view, and it's pretty clear here, is that it's an absolute necessity to have strong governance. Don, if I can just, just tap on to one thing that you said there. First of all, I, I would agree. I, I can't think of an example. And, you know, I've had fantastic boards and not so fantastic, but good enough. Um, but in all cases, they made me a better project manager. Hence, yes. not to say nothing of the project itself, they made me a better leader. But the, and and just on that, um, Doug, I just want to take one more second. That is, and this is a small point, but it it's turned into a bigger point for me. And that is, when I'm sitting down to write my CEO report in, in the case of a corporate position or my board report in the case of a project, and I'm sitting there thinking, what is it I'm trying about this? about the state of the project or the state of this issue or what level of risk I think it is or how worried the board should be. That moment of reflection, what is it that I'm trying to say here, is actually a very, very valuable exercise. And the fact that you're writing it for someone else, that accountability switch clicks in and you say, what am I looking at and how am I going to describe that? And the process of doing that always gives me more clarity and more I'm more articulate, which means I can be more articulate with the rest of the team or more articulate with the stakeholder. And I think about issues when I get to the risks and alternative section that I'm trying to describe. Sometimes I come up with stuff that I just in my day wouldn't have thought of. So I just think that that, that process of reporting in and of itself adds value. Yeah, no, I agree. Writing it down versus presenting oh, by PowerPoint is by far um, a, a a much stronger discipline. And it's the old story, you know, if you want a memo that's four pages long, I'll do it an hour. If you want one that is one page long and captures the issue, I'm going to need a couple of days. And that's what you need to be able to do, is not overwhelm the board with volumes of information, rather um, absorb it, think about it, distill it, and get to the essence. And you're right, Jane. Uh, you automatically become a better leader and a better decision maker as a consequence of having to go through that. That leads in nicely to a topic that you both spoke very passionately about at the earlier session, that is accountability. There are a few questions centered around this topic. Perhaps we can move more and have more discussion about this. It is in line with the discussion we just had about board composition. Don, you talked about accountability of the board or boards. What do you mean by boards being accountable? And what does accountability actually mean? Okay, Doug, um, yet another uh, good question. And I think um, between Jane and I, hopefully we can respond appropriately. The, let's uh, take the example of it being a corporate board. 
It's a standalone corporate entity with shareholders established uh, in either a provincial um, company act or, or federal jurisdiction. It doesn't matter. There are very clear obligations in the law around duty of care, fiduciary responsibilities, and a reasonable person's test in regard to many matters. And it's pretty easy um, to understand how as an individual board member, you are accountable for the best quality of work. And you can't behind, hide behind the fact that you're acting as a board. Clearly, it's the board that acts, but your obligations are, are yours as an individual as much as they are um, the board itself. So that to me is plain and simple. And all that is required in order to acquit oneself and for the board to demonstrate that it has properly balanced the interest of the business with stakeholders is a pretty high test, a pretty high bar. And there ought to be lots of transparency around your decision making. And that's one of the elements of, of strong governance is there should be real transparency around decision making so that there can be either retrospectively by way of a review, but ideally in real time, as reflected by the progress of the project, um, lots of examples as to how the board and the team are in fact behaving and performing. If it's not a corporate board, say it's a, you know, a division of a business, or it's a project board established by a crown corporation, um, and there's lack of clarity as to whether or not, in fact, the board has been delegated any kind of authority. It's difficult then for the board to say, we are accountable. So I would say the owner in those circumstances must, in order for governance to be effective, ensure that the board, no matter how you call it, project or a committee, is delegated explicitly sufficient authority in order for them to be accountable. And if that's clear, then as a um, entity, whether it's a Crown Corp or again, division of a major corporation, it's clear that the board and the members of that board, if they accept that and can be assessed uh, with respect to their performance to be accountable. And accountability, as I was suggesting, also means that your personal reputation is at stake, not just the uh, overall uh, interests of the shareholder and stakeholders. You have a professional obligation um, to do your very best. So, uh, and as a project goes sideways, encounters problems, again, I think it's reasonable for an owner to hold the board to account. What does that mean? What kind of accountability? Well, you get asked to leave. Um, in the worst of instances, um, there's litigation and there's a review of your performance as a board. You know, that's a pretty significant uh, circumstance, but it results in there being accountability and people paying attention to their job as a director. Jane, over to you. Don, I think you touched on something there that it's maybe just worth talking a little about it again in practical terms. Um, I, I, I think you were 
thoughtful to suggest that in the legal context, if you're talking about a company that's incorporated under uh, legislation, what flows from that is a whole bunch of law, both in statute and case law that say, you know, what directors are responsible for and the extent of their responsibility and yada, yada, yada. And there's, you know, hundreds of years of, of consideration of that in, a, in the corporate context, whether it be public or private. And usually, uh, even in the case of Crown Corporations, that's pretty clear. They're the constating documents of the Quill speak to the responsibility of directors and the broader legislation around certainly federal crowns, this is the case, and, and provincial crowns as well, stipulates with some specificity, you know, what's your job as a director, what's your duty, when and will you have been seen to have met that duty and, and not. As you move toward project governance, as Dawn has indicated, you start to move along that spectrum and you may well not be a director at BC company or uh, there, there may not be that corporate framework that in which this team is nested. And in the absence of that, which is more likely than not to be the case in a project, although, you know, sometimes, as I think I spoke about last time when I was doing a project in the Kootenays, it was a provincial crown corporation and our project board was effectively uh, the project's major capital projects committee of which there was only one huge project, but it was effectively the project board and operated that way. So there's an example of a committee of a crown doing a project within the auspices of a more traditional corporate environment. But but more likely than not, it'll be something created by bylaw, as was the case, is the case in Calgary, I believe, Don. Certainly was the case of the Capital Retail District. The public sector owner will create some kind of entity with an instrument, like a bylaw, that sets out who does what on this. But the the key thing in those circumstances where you don't have a, a legislative framework is, is the point that Don alluded to, which is it comes then down to what authority is delegated to that entity and how clearly is that recorded. And that's why it was really important to spend as much time as we did in the last session just emphasizing that it takes time because you really have to think from the owner's perspective and the management team or the project team's perspective, who is going to do what? so that everybody understands what the owner's doing and where decisions have to come back up to it, where the delegated project governance board is doing and, and where it holds responsibility to make decisions and where the team or project team makes decisions. And you really do have to kind of map that out. And then that provides you the bucket of things that Don has referenced as delegated authority to the group. So uh, I'll take Candleline as an example because it was, it was complicated because you had, as I said, five as I said earlier, five different sponsors, they all had a different view of who was doing what. So at the end of the day, uh, it was quite a complicated set of documents that finally said, this is the authority we're delegating on behalf of all of us to this thing that we're calling a project board. Again, in that case, we ended up incorporating a company, but it doesn't really matter. The point is that that conversation took place. So I knew that if on a forecast basis, I was X, likely to be X days over schedule, and I had to elevate it to a certain point. It was clear. It was written right. And if I was operating within a comfort zone of schedule, then I could make decisions at the board. It was cl clear as day. Same as forecast to complete. Same as uh, severity of uh, safety re safety uh, results. It was. We had to sort of think through when are you on your own here, and therefore accountable, and when is it coming up to the shareholder? And I, I think that delegation of authority is is the, is the concept to to sort of focus on um, that applies across the board even if you're not in a core legislated framework. Thank you again, both for joining. Uh, that closes off the discussion for today. Please look for the next recorded 
question and answer session with our industry experts will be posted soon.